Hello and welcome to this extra inning of The Ballpark, a podcast from the Phelan US Centre here at the London School of Economics. I'm Chris Gilson, Managing Editor of the Phelan US Centre's blog on US politics and policy, USAP. In January 2024, I spoke to Dr. Jordan Tama, Provost Associate Professor at American University School of International Service. His research examines the politics and processes of US foreign policy. We spoke about his new book, Bipartisanship and U.S. Foreign Policy, Cooperation in a Polarized Age. We also discussed how party control in the U.S. government can influence foreign policy, the changing coalitions of the Democratic and Republican parties, and why some foreign policy issues have bipartisan consensus while others don't. So in theory, the party, uh, in theory, in the, the party in the United States, which controls the presidency, tends to influence how U.S. foreign policy is developed and implemented. To what extent would you say this is true? And how do the parties that are out of power, as well as the ones that are in power, influence foreign policy? Thank you. Well, the president's party does have a lot more influence than the opposition party over U.S. foreign policy because the president sets the overall direction of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, The president is the dominant figure in U.S. foreign policy. The president directs American diplomacy. Uh, The president drives most decisions regarding military engagements, uh, decides uh, where and when U.S. troops might get deployed overseas. Um, And members of the president's party generally, but not always, follow the president's lead on foreign policy. Um, It's relatively uncommon for... uh, you know, other members of the president's party to kind of sharply criticize the president over foreign policy. Um, the opposition party also can have a lot of influence over foreign policy, though. Um, this uh, can especially be true in Congress, where the opposition party can try to block congressional approval of the president's initiatives. Uh, Congress has to appropriate funds for any foreign policy programs, whether it's defense, like military aid or, or diplomatic um, programs. And uh, the opposition party um, often uses their influence in Congress to, to block congressional approval of some of the president's initiatives. Also, they can have influence over public opinion. So when the opposition party criticizes the president's foreign policy, this can uh, weaken public support for the president's policies uh, that can make it more difficult for the president to carry out his or her foreign policy agenda. One thing we're really interested in is the role of divided government as well. So when uh, d- there's a different party in the White House than is in uh, one, one part of uh, Congress, the House or the Senate, how important or how influential is divided government to foreign policy? Well, it matters a lot. We're seeing that these days in the United States where the Republican Party controls the House of Representatives and the Democratic Party controls the Senate and, of course, the presidency with Biden as president. Um, right now, it's quite difficult for Biden and the Democrats to get the Republican-controlled House of Representatives to approve some of their major foreign policy initiatives, particularly aid for Ukraine, which is currently stalled in the Republican-controlled House of Representatives. Um, and uh, some other initiatives as well. Uh, the Biden administration wants 
package of aid to Israel, humanitarian aid for Gaza to go through, can't get it through the Republican-controlled House of Representatives. So in general, when there's divided government, it's harder for the president to carry forward their, their foreign policy. Also, divided government can matter because the opposition party often uses their control of the House or Senate to conduct hearings or investigations of the president, including the president's foreign policy. Um, and uh, in the Senate, when there's divided control, the opposition party may hold up presidential nominations for senior executive branch positions like the Secretary of State or Secretary of Defense. Um, it'll also be harder for the president to get Congress to approve international agreements under divided government. In general, in the U.S. system, the Congress has a lot of influence over foreign policy. The president um, needs Congress to act in order to um, carry forward important aspects of foreign policy. So divided government um, matters a great deal. If I could just parse this a little bit more, in what ways can a party that's in control of, say, the Senate or versus the House, for example, influence uh, U.S. foreign policy? Yeah, the, the House and Senate do differ in some important ways. The Senate is solely responsible for considering treaties. Uh, it's also solely responsible for considering nominations of officials for senior executive branch positions. So on those issues, it matters a lot more which party's in control in the Senate than which party's in control in the House. Um, another key difference between the House and Senate is that in the in the House, the majority party has more complete control over the over the agenda of the chamber. Uh, in other words, the minority party in the House can't really do anything. Um, and so um, if you have the opposition party in control of the House, as is the case now uh, in the United States, the the president's party is is almost, you know, kind of um, helpless to get them to to you know, consider legislation or pass legislation. In the Senate, individual senators matter a lot more. So even if you're not in the majority, you can sometimes make a difference as an individual senator. And haven't we seen that in the last year or so with, I think there was one particular senator who was holding up a lot of military yes. um, promotions <laughs> or military right. positions, weren't this they? This was Tommy um, Tuberville. Uh, he um, decided to hold up um, all promotions of military officers that would need to get cleared by the Senate. And that's a, a lot of uh, promotions. There were several hundred of these that he was holding up in an effort to get the Defense Department to change a policy that had to do with abortion. So he was carrying forward an anti-abortion agenda. Uh, the specific issue was uh, Defense Department policy allowed women to be reimbursed for travel expenses if they needed to travel to a different state to get an abortion. Very important right now because since the overturning of the Roe v. Wade ruling in the United States, many states have restricted or outlawed abortion. And so there are U.S. service members, uh, military service members uh, who would need to travel to a different state to get an abortion. And uh, Senator Tuberville said, I'm not going to allow any military promotions to get through the Senate unless the Defense Department overturns this policy. The Biden administration kind of held firm and said, we're not going to change this policy just to satisfy this one senator. 
Um, and um, eventually, it took a long time, but eventually, um, Tuberville kind of backed down because he he faced a lot of pressure from um, not just uh, Democrats, but also some Republicans who are pro-military and made the case that this is really harming military readiness to not allow military promotions to go forward. Um, and military leaders and military families put a lot of pressure on him. And eventually he backed down and those, th those holds were lifted. But that's a great example of how one senator can, can hold up um, policy uh, and one way in which you know, it can be so difficult for the president to kind of carry forward uh, his or her foreign policy agenda in the U.S. system. In your book, Bipartisanship and U.S. Foreign Policy, Cooperation in a Polarized Age, you argue that there is significant bipartisanship on many foreign policy issues, even as America becomes more polarized on other issues. Why is this surprising? Well, the persistence of foreign policy bipartisanship is surprising because in many ways, Democrats and Republicans live on different planets today. Um, you know, even on basic questions of fact or science, there are some significant differences between Democrats and Republicans. So for instance, on issues such as whether humans cause climate change, Democrats and Republicans see this differently. You know, most all Democrats think humans cause climate change. Many Republicans don't. Um, on the question of whether January 6, 2021, there was a violent attack on the U.S. Capitol. Most Democrats think there was. Most Republicans think there was just a peaceful protest on January 6. Uh, so different understandings just of what's happening in the world. Um, and also partisan animosity between Democrats and Republicans is is quite high today. Polls show that most Democrats and Republicans in the pub, in the American public, not just at the political elite level, but among American voters, American citizens, most Democrats and Republicans don't like each other. They have cool attitudes toward each other, um, cool in the, in the sense of you know uh, unfavorable. Um, and on a lot of core issues of domestic policy, like taxes, um, abortion, government regulation of the economy, Democrats and Republicans favor very different policies. So given all that, given the kind of intensity and scope of polarization, it's it's surprising that there are still um, some foreign policy issues where Democrats and Republicans do cooperate. Um, and a couple examples are China, um, where there's a fair degree of bipartisan consensus today, um, trade and international economic policy. Uh, there's also um, quite a bit of overlap between how many Democrats and Republicans see those issues. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's striking given how far apart Democrats and Republicans are in other ways. In your book, you also describe how many foreign policy issues face intra-party uh, rather than inter-party, so within party rather than, rather than between parties, divisions. Can you talk a bit about this concept? And are the Democratic and Republican parties characterized by similar sources of this intra-party contestation on foreign policy? Or are these internal conflicts different for the different parties? Yeah, many foreign policy issues are marked neither by partisan polarization nor by bipartisan unity. Uh, so we tend to think about those two possibilities. 
uh, that either the parties are divided or the or they're unified. In reality, it's usually somewhere in between or or a mix of the two. In other words, uh, the parties aren't totally split on foreign policy and they're not totally on the same page. Um, instead, there are often divisions within one or both of the parties, and then that results in some Democrats cooperating with some Republicans, but they're not all they're not all on the same page. Um, so a couple examples of this today, U.S. policy toward Ukraine, U.S. policy toward Israel and Israel's conflict with Hamas. On Ukraine, there are um, some Republicans who are aligned with the Biden administration in terms of favoring U.S. support for Ukraine, favoring military aid to Ukraine. Um, this includes, for instance, the uh, Republican leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell. He's very pro-Ukraine. In the presidential campaign, Nikki Haley is also very pro-Ukraine. Uh, so there's there's a bipartisan alignment there between those Republicans and the Biden administration. But then there are other Republicans, many Republicans, including Donald Trump and the MAGA wing of the Republican Party, who are not interested in supporting Ukraine anymore. They want to end U.S. aid to Ukraine. They think we don't have a you know a, a dog in this fight. We shouldn't be spending mon money to help Ukraine. Um, so that's an example of an intra-party split. Israel and Israel's war with Hamas is um, an example of an intra-party split within the Democratic Party. So there you've got um, uh, some Democrats and most Republicans um, aligned with the Biden administration in, in favoring U.S. support for Israel uh, to, to varying degrees, but generally uh, thinking that the United States should should support Israel as it has for, for many years, including with military aid. Um, you have um, a growing number of progressive Democrats who um, think that the United States should not provide Israel with military aid uh, or should strongly condition that military aid on Israel ending its uh, you know, military campaign in Gaza and uh, generally, they are more sympathetic to the Palestinian position than to the Israeli position um, right now. And so there, there's a split within the Democratic Party at the same time as you have, uh, you know, some Democrats and Republicans aligned in, in having a more pro-Israel pro um, stance. Um, and, you know, these examples are kind of representative of, of common splits today within the two parties. So on the Democratic side, the, the main kind of internal conflict is between um, liberal internationalists like Biden, who favor strong U.S. involvement in the world in many dimensions, including diplomatically as well as militarily, favor a strong U.S. presence overseas in, in a variety of ways, including militarily. Um, um, and then on the other side, Within the Democratic Party, there are what I would call progressive restrainers. These are people like Senator Bernie Sanders. Sanders is an example of this, who um, favor a strong U.S. diplomatic engagement, especially to address kind of global transnational issues like climate change. But they want to limit U.S. military involvement overseas, uh, limit U.S. military aid to other countries, and kind of generally demilitarize U.S. foreign policy, uh, limit U.S. military presence. Over overseas, um, on the Republican side, 
there's a split between um, conservative internationalists and nationalists. So the conservative internationalists have a lot in common with the liberal internationalists. Generally, they favor a strong U.S. involvement in the world um, in many dimensions, especially on the military side. Those so they 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 tend to be relatively interventionist, favor uh, U.S. military commitments to allies and partners, U.S. military presence overseas, um, strong U.S. alliances. Um, and then on the other side, there are nationalists, um, and Trump is the leading example of this, who um, favor having a strong military, but don't want to have a, have a, a significant American presence overseas. They're more inward looking. They want to protect the American border. Uh, you know, if someone attacks the United States, they would respond strongly, but they don't think the United States should be committed overseas. They want to scale back U.S. commitments to allies, scale back U.S. military presence um, overseas. So, so both of the parties have divisions. There's there's similarities between them uh, in the sense that both, you know, in the broadest sense, involve splits between more people who are more internationalist and a little more inward looking. Um, but there are some different nuances to the the splits within the two parties. There's an old saying: politics ends at the water's edge. When does and do inter and intra-party conflicts over foreign policy cause problems for America's foreign policy goals as they are? Yeah, political division, whether it's of the inter-party variety or the intra-party variety, makes it harder for the U.S. to achieve its foreign policy goals. Uh, this is especially true when a foreign policy initiative needs congressional backing. And a lot of foreign policy initiatives in the United States do need congressional backing uh, because the president cannot spend money on foreign policy unless Congress has appropriated that money. The president um, often needs congressional support to approve international agreements, for instance, trade agreements. Um, and political division, whether it's between the parties or within the parties, makes it harder for Congress to pass legislation to approve uh, foreign policy initiatives. Also, political division makes it more likely that a president's successor will reverse uh, their predecessor's policies. Um, and this has happened a lot in recent years. So when Trump became president, he pulled out a lot of inter out of a lot of international agreements that Obama had signed on to. This included the Paris Climate Accord, the um, Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action with Iran, often known as the Iran Nuclear Deal, the 2015 agreement that Obama had negotiated with Iran and some other allies and partners, um, pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a major trade agreement that Obama had negotiated. Uh, when uh, Biden became president, he you know, did another U-turn in U.S. policy, moving the U.S. back in a liberal internationalist direction. He uh, rejoined the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, has he tried to rejoin the Iran nuclear deal. If Biden, you know, uh, loses the election that's coming up to Trump, Trump will again reverse U.S. policies. And this kind of back and forth makes the U.S. Um, a less reliable partner. Uh, it reduces the credibility of U.S. commitments because other countries look at the United States and they might say, well, you know, um, we trust Biden. We like what he's saying. Um, we are on board with the policies he's promoting, but how do we know um, that in 12 months, there won't be a different president who 
reverses all of that and erodes those commitments? And also, how can we have confidence that the U.S. Congress is going to back up his commitments? And if we can't have confidence that the president's commitments will be backed up by Congress or maintained by the president's successor, why should we go out on a limb and, and reach agreements with the United States? Why should we you know, invest our own time and energy in developing partnership with the United States? So th this is a major problem for U.S. foreign policy, perhaps the biggest problem uh, resulting from you know, America's political division today. So it sounds like you're, you're talking about what could be described as an unevenness in U.S. foreign policy going in one direction under one administration and then moving to quite a, a different or even almost opposed sort of direction. Is this a fairly new phenomenon in the way that, that this kind of polarization over foreign policy is in some respects? Or is it sort of kind of the, 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 the big edge of maybe something that's been trending over the recent decades? Yeah, the shifts from one president to the next in foreign policy are not entirely new. Uh, if you go back to the Cold War, when Ronald Reagan became president, he took U.S. foreign policy in a quite different direction than uh, Jimmy Carter's approach to foreign policy, his predecessor. Um, Reagan moved in a more uh, militaristic direction in terms of his approach to the Cold War. Um, so that's one, one example. But in general, there, was, there were less dramatic shifts from one president to the next before the recent era. And particularly during the Cold War, there was, in a broad sense, a fair degree of consensus across the parties about the overall U.S. approach to the world with you know, differences of degree and nuance between the parties and among presidents. But there was some overall consensus about U.S. approach toward the Soviet Union, toward communism, toward international engagement. And since the end of the Cold War, there's been more fragmentation and as a result, more significant shifts from one um, president to the next. So this is not entirely new, but it's it's much more pronounced now. And it's become most pronounced with the you know emergence of Trump because Trump um, has espoused a number of positions that really depart sharply from the you know prior uh, consensus over foreign policy that was shared with most Democratic and Republican presidents. Before Trump, every U.S. president since World War II was broadly speaking an internationalist. They varied in you know, how much they prioritized military power versus diplomacy, but overall, they were all internationalists. Um, Trump is the first president that the United States has had who um, fundamentally does not value international engagement, international alliances, international commitments. And so that has resulted in more dramatic departures from Obama to Trump, and then from Trump to Biden. And, you know, if Trump returned to the office again, you know, that, that would be the case. Thank you. And I'd just like to tug on that point just a little bit more in terms of Trump's departure. You, you said that the consensus amongst most recent administrations before Trump was this kind of embrace of and, and encouraging of liberal internationalism. And Trump's a big departure. And we've been talking about the various inter and intra-party uh, disagreements over foreign policy. 
is Trump's departure reflective of his voters or a lot of his primary base, for example? Or would you say that this rejection of liberal internationalism on Trump's part is Trump leading the voters? Obviously, Trump didn't win the 2020 election, but it was fairly close. He did win the 2016 election and didn't, you know, he didn't hide these particular tendencies. And he, he said he was going to do these things effectively rejecting the liberal internationalist uh, kind of uh, consensus. So I guess what I'm asking is how, how much of a departure is it due to his voters or is it something different that we're talking about? Yeah, there's a little bit of both. Trump, I think, picked up on a, a set of concerns that many voters already had, but he has amplified and magnified those concerns and kind of sparked um, more voters among the Republican base to have his set of, you know, ideas about the world. So what Trump, I think, picked up on was that um, there was already within the American electorate a sense among many voters that um, the United States was not benefiting from globalization, that, uh, you know, ordinary Americans were, were sometimes losing out in terms of, you know, competition with other countries, uh, that um, uh, jobs were sometimes being lost as a result of, you know, competition uh, from uh, other countries. And there was already a sense that some voters had that, you know, China was to blame for this or trade agreements were to blame for this. Um, so that already existed within the American electorate. Trump kind of inflamed that sentiment by, by emphasizing it and by uh, expressing it in a very kind of direct and pronounced way by, you know, saying things like um, China was raping the United States. I mean, this is language that he has used, you know, kind of extreme language about uh, China, uh, you know, taking advantage of the United States, seeing other countries were laughing at the United States, you know. Um, and he, so by using that kind of language, he kind of stoked this feeling of, you know, we are being taken advantage of by the world and we need to do more, you know, America needs to do more to protect our people. Um, and that has led the Republican base to become more nationalist in their worldview, more uh, protectionist on economic issues, um, less supportive of international engagement. You can see that in public opinion polls. So uh, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs does polls every year about American political attitudes um, on foreign policy, uh, attitudes of American voters. And what they found in their most recent poll is that for the first time, most Republican voters do not support an active U.S. role in the world. Um, and that's, I think, evidence of a, of a Trump effect, that Trump has led Americans in the Republican base to be more antagonistic toward the rest of the world. But he didn't create that from scratch. There, that was already, you know, a set of concerns that was kind of percolating. Uh, and he he kind of built that up. So we kind of touched on this a little bit already, but I'd like to, I'd love you to expand on this. How have the changing coalitions of the Democratic and Republican parties since the 2008 election, say, changed how 
each of the parties approach foreign policy? And is this contributing to or undermining the ability of the parties to reach a bipartisan consensus on foreign policy? Thanks. The coalitions of the parties have been gradually changing um, in recent years. Um, some of this is is due to Trump, but it's not entirely due to Trump. The Republican Party's coalition is now centered on working class and middle class white voters, um, particularly um, voters in in rural areas um, and in um, parts of the country that are more removed from um, globalization and kind of international connections. Um, and many of the voters in the Republican base are uh, people who don't have a college degree. Generally, it's a less educated voting base than the Democratic uh, Party's base. These voters generally favor a nationalist approach to foreign policy, um, in particular on issues like border security. They're very um, anti-immigration, um, also um, very oriented towards policies that they think will, um, you know, protect uh, American jobs, enhance comp economic competition with China. Um, and their greater importance in the Republican Party makes it more likely that Republican Party leaders will favor policies of economic protectionism and inward-looking foreign policies, which are the kinds of policies Trump has favored. And Trump has, you know, stoked um, some of this, but there is a there is a shift there in the coalition within the Democratic Party. The main change is that the Democratic Party is, has become more centered around voters in urban areas and highly educated voters. And generally, these voters tend to be more cosmopolitan in their outlook, um, and they're more concerned with global challenges like climate change. Um, and overall, these shifts in the two parties are making it more difficult for the for the two parties to come together on on foreign policy but there are certain areas where bipartisan cooperation is still possible given these coalitions so for instance on international economic policies many voters in both parties favor steps to enhance us economic competitiveness um vis-a-vis -vis china for instance um and one example of this is um, last year, the Biden administration worked with Congress to pass a law that provided for massive federal investment in U.S. manufacturing of semiconductors. And the idea here is to make the U.S. more resilient to supply chain disruptions, um, prevent the possibility of China taking over Taiwan and then having kind of control of the global semiconductor market. And on that type of issue, there can still be alignment between Democrats and Republicans, but overall, it is it is harder for them to um, come together given given the nature of the coalitions. Thank you. So, just to kind of expand on that, you, you mentioned there are some areas where bipartisanship is is easier and and is more likely. So, for example, the U.S.'s approach to China seems to have more bipartisanship uh, as opposed to more recent debates on on. Uh, Ukraine and the Israel-Hamas war. Why do you think there there is are these differences? There's more bipartisanship on China because 
many Americans view China as a threat to the United States, much like many Americans viewed the Soviet Union as a threat during the Cold War, although the perception of China as a threat has not quite risen to the level of the feelings about the Soviet Union during the Cold War, um, whereas Ukraine and Israel and Gaza are, are seen as more distant concerns. Um, and also, Americans across the political spectrum find something that they don't like about China or something that they're concerned about with China. So for many conservatives, um, China is concerning because it threatens America's status as the leading global power. Uh, the notion of the U.S. as as the leading power is particularly salient among uh, among many conservatives, um, and that makes China's rise alarming because it threatens to supplant the U.S. as the world's most powerful country. For um, religious conservatives, many conservative Christians, especially evangelical Christians, there's um, a particular animosity toward China because China restricts religious freedom. Uh, doesn't allow free practice of Christianity. Um, and there are Christian activists who have been quite active and effective in building uh, kind of a coalition of Christian conservatives in the U.S. who are concerned about China because of the way it restricts religious freedom. Um, many liberals also... Uh, have concerns about China, but somewhat different concerns. So for a, a lot of liberals worry about human rights violations, such as restrictions on um, civil liberties or political rights. And of course, China, you know, severely restricts uh, political expression. And so a lot of liberals um, are concerned about, you know, the way China treats the Uyghur population or uh, the way it has um, reduced liberties in Hong Kong after um, taking over Hong Kong. And Americans across the board are um, concerned about Chinese economic practices. Uh, surveys show that most Americans think China has unfair economic practices, economic practices that disadvantage U.S. workers and U.S. companies. And so there's this kind of constellation of issues that um, some of which are more salient to different parts of the electorate, but almost every part of the electorate you know, has something about China that that bothers them. And so that is conducive to there being bipartisanship on China. Whereas sort of on issues like Ukraine or Israel, it's there are aspects of what's going on with those countries that are important to certain parts of the electorate, but not not the entire not the entire electorate is kind of motivated in the same way. So on on the war in Ukraine, um for some Americans, this is a this is a more remote problem that doesn't directly concern the United States. It's not going to you know threaten us directly. And some conservatives also feel an affinity for Vladimir Putin. This is different than with China. There there no, there's no part of the U.S. electorate that has an affinity toward Xi Jinping or the Chinese government. But for social conservatives in the U.S., uh, some of them feel an affinity with Vladimir Putin because he's a social conservative. Uh, he in, in many of his kind of ideas in terms things he um, espouses in terms of uh, stances on, um, say, you know, LGBT issues. He's uh, re restricted um, rights of LGBT citizens in Russia. Um, there are American conservatives who think that's great. 
And so they see him as an ally. So th this has limited the base of support for Ukraine within the Republican Party. Some Republicans are actually pro-Russia, pro-Putin. Um, and then Israel and Hamas has its own kind of, you know, particular politics. It doesn't generate as much bipartisanship because it's pitting two impulses against each other. Um, one is the longstanding U.S. impulse to support Israel, which is still prevalent in, in much of the American electorate. But the other is the progressive impulse to support vulnerable populations like the people of Gaza, Palestinian citizens of Gaza who are victims of conflict. And that's um, kind of pushing U.S. In, in two different directions. Thank you. So does the same degree of bipartisanship extend to what might be called more wonky U.S. foreign policy issues on countries and areas that are less regularly covered as compared to the hot button issues that we've kind of talked about, maybe thinking about U.S. trade, regulatory relationships with the EU, international development. Is is that more, can that be more bipartisan agreements on that, or are they still subject to the same kind of difficulties that we've been talking about? The politics do tend to be different on issues that are out of the limelight. When an issue is very salient to the public, when the media is covering it, talking about it, that actually creates an incentive to politicize issues. It gives politicians an incentive to try to score political points against the other party because um, voters are, are paying attention to it and may, um, you know, may vote based on that issue. Um, when issues are out of the limelight, and this tends to be true of more technical issues or more wonky issues, um, that can be conducive to bipartisanship because there's not as much of an incentive to, to politicize, to score political points against the other party. But um, a key difference is then interest groups are often more important. So um, if an issue is out of the limelight, politicians may not need to be as responsive to voters because voters are not going to vote on it but they will tend to be responsive to what interest groups are advocating, particularly interest groups with which they have ties. And some interest groups have ties to one party or, or the other party. Some interest groups have ties to both parties. So a couple examples, re regulatory issues, say, you know, uh, regulatory alignment between the U.S. and, and the EU. Um, that's an issue where um, the business community is, is very important in the United States, more than voters, really. Voters are not paying attention to that, but American businesses are paying a great deal of attention to that. They lobby American politicians, Democrats, and Republicans. And generally, the American business community pushes for less regulation. Um, and generally, the American business community has a lot of influence in Washington. And um, typically, um, as a result of their influence, the U.S., um, pushes for less regulation than the EU. And there's often a, you know, a gap between the US and EU where, where US is favoring softer regulation. We see that in issues like privacy right now, where EU is, you know, goes further in terms of uh, restrictions to protect privacy than, than the United States might be willing to go. Um, but business groups tend to have particularly strong influence in the Republican party. So this sometimes creates polarization between the parties. Um, the Republican Party tends to be very responsive to business on issues like regulations. Democrats um, are sometimes responsive to business on those issues, but sometimes are 
more oriented toward the positions of labor um, or um, just generally more willing to support stronger regulations. Um, another uh, issue where the story is, uh, I think, quite interesting is, is foreign aid, international development aid, also a fairly technical issue. Um, from the standpoint of ideology, um, Democrats are more supportive of international development than Republicans. Uh, liberal ideology, uh, generally, in, well, in the in, liberal in the U.S. context, meaning left-leaning, left-leaning ideology tends to be supportive of uh, government action to address social problems, and so uh, that makes Democrats generally predisposed to favor government action to address social problems overseas, just as you know it would be oriented towards addressing social problems at home. Conservative ideology favors limited role of government. Uh, so just as conservatives tend to favor less role of government at home, they tend to favor less foreign aid overseas. So that points towards polarization. And generally, Democrats are more supportive of international development aid than Republicans. That's always true. Um, but uh, there's uh, an interest group coalition in the United States that's been um, quite effective at, at maintaining some bipartisanship on international development aid. Um, because it includes not only uh, development um, NGOs, but also multinational businesses that think uh, development aid is important because it creates business opportunities for US companies overseas. So there are major businesses who advocate in Washington for development aid so that uh, the you know, countries, uh, the economies of developing countries will grow be more prosperous, and therefore U.S. businesses will have more opportunities uh, for uh, you know trade or investment in those countries. And those multinational businesses have worked with Republican politicians to maintain support for international development aid. During the Trump administration, Trump wanted to slash the budget for U.S. international development aid dramatically. He proposed cutting the budget for development aid by a third. And this coalition that supports development aid um, pushed back against that and and Congress ended up pushing back against Trump on that and maintained the budget for national development aid rather than cutting it by a third. If Trump returns to the, to the presidency, he will again try to slash international development aid dramatically. And the big question will be, will Republicans all go along with him on that? Or will they again kind of resist that based on this um, pressure from multinational businesses who actually value international development aid? Well, just before we finish, I'd just like to give you the opportunity to talk a bit about your new book, if you'd like to, or any other research or other work you, you think our listeners would be interested in. My new book is Bipartisanship in U.S. Foreign Policy Cooperation in a Polarized Age. And the premise of the book is that even though American politics are very polarized today in many respects, there are still areas where Democrats and Republicans cooperate. Um, and this tends to be um, on foreign policy more than on domestic policy. But at the same time, um, it's rare for there to be bipartisan unity. Instead, the kind of normal condition of politics on foreign policy these days is for there to be um, a combination of some areas of bipartisan cooperation as well as intraparty division. This is true today on, on issues like Ukraine, um, Israel, 
um, where some Democrats, Republicans are on the same page, and and at the same time there are splits within the um, within the parties. And so the basic idea is that the political landscape on foreign policy is more nuanced than you might realize if you're kind of looking at the broader trends of American politics, which are all about polarization. Um, it's pointing out that the political dynamics really vary across issues. So it's not the case that uh, you know politics work in the same way across all issues. There are specific aspects of each issue that lead Democrats and Republicans to kind of be opposed to each other or align with with each other in different ways. And I think this is going to this is going to remain the case uh, for the foreseeable future, even as Democrats and Republicans, uh, you know engage in pretty fierce battles against each other uh, in other areas of American politics. Jordan Turner, thank you so much for speaking to the ballpark today. It's been a real pleasure to uh, be on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Dr. Jordan Tamer is Provost Associate Professor at American University's School of International Service. And that's it for this extra inning of the ballpark. Thanks to Dr. Jordan Tamer for joining us in this episode. For more information about the Failing U.S. Center, you can go to our website at lse.ac.uk forward slash united hyphen states. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at lse underscore us. And on Facebook, we're lse united states. This extra inning was produced by Chris Gilson and Anderson Tan. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. You can look them up at rangerswings.com. To listen to all our previous episodes, just enter LSE Ballpark into your search engine of choice. You'll find us. We're free to listen to, and like lots of other podcasts, we're ad-free. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can email us any feedback at uscenter at lse.ac.uk, or you can send us a tweet at lse underscore us. And tell your friends about us. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the Failing U.S. Center or of the London School of Economics. Thanks for listening.